Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If they're not, and we're not embarrassed now, I don't think a win on a Sunday night changes anything. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think losing the finale of that series would have changed much of being embarrassed. If you're not embarrassed by what happened Friday and Saturday, then you're never going to be embarrassed. And I'll tell you one thing that really should embarrass you, and I've, I've certainly experienced this with the other teams I root for, the Brave fan took over City Field. And that's a tough pill to swallow. It's one thing when the Yankee fan takes over City Field, their road trip is five minutes. You know what I mean? Like, they're our brothers and sisters. They live in the same area we live. So you can understand when the Yankee fan takes over City Field. You can even understand to a degree when the Philly fan takes over City Field. Drive up I-95, it's not that far away. It's a fun trip. Any excuse to get out of that rotten city of Philadelphia, like, I respect it. Where the hell did these Brave fans come from? Like, where did they come from? And they made a lot of noise, and they took over. And that's embarrassing. That is embarrassing. But the one thing I can't do, and I struggled with this a lot a couple of years ago with the Jets during their tank for Trevor Lawrence season, even though I know sometimes you're better off losing. I get it. I'm not arguing that. I cannot sit there watching my team and root for them to lose. Now, I can become immune to the losing and not have it bother me the way it normally would? There's no question. Like, I was able Saturday night as I'm driving home after getting swept by the Braves. I'm angry I was, you know, the Braves continue to kick our asses, but it obviously didn't affect me the way it did last October. So you can kind of grow, at least I can, immune to the losses a little bit, but I can't sit there and say, hey, I want them to lose. Adam Adovino comes in ninth inning, one-run lead. I can't sit there rooting for Orlando Arcia to lead off with a double. I just, I can't get to that point, man. So you're telling me you've never hate-watched the Mets at all, in any capacity? Well, I I hate what I've seen, (laughs) and I hate individual players, but when Daniel Vogelback, who drives us all nuts, when Daniel Vogelback is up, with first and third, two outs in the third inning. Remember, the Mets had a little opportunity in the third. They're down three to one. This is Sunday's game. They have first and third, two out after Pete strikes out. I hate Daniel Vogelback. Like, if I'm ever going to boo, I'm going to boo when he strikes out with two more guys on base. But I still want him to hit the ball 500 feet. You know what I mean? So, am I hate watching Daniel Vogelback? Yeah, I'm expecting the worst. I'm going to curse him out. But I want him to come through. Spoiler alert, he didn't. He grounded out the first base in case anybody forgot. No, I just, listen, I I respect it, but I think it pisses me off more when they do something 
positive versus a team where I'm like, they just got their asses kicked. And Sanga, listen, Sanga started off slow. He settled down. But to have that sixth run inning, that, that that's where they scored six runs in one inning, and just to me it was just like, where the hell was this all weekend? Well, it, it wasn't anything they did. It was yeah. a very unimpressive six-run inning. They scored one, two, three runs on either bases loaded walks or catcher interferences. The only hit they came through with was the Ortega two-run single, and Rafael Ortega has no shot to exist in our universe next year. He's one of those guys. He's here. He's filling out a roster spot. We will forget he ever played for the Met. He's Nori Aoki. That's what he is. No offense. Nori Aoki played for us how many years ago? I don't even remember. I don't freaking remember. I don't remember the year he was on the Mets. I just know he was. And there are guys like that. They fill out rosters in bad seasons, and then we forget about those bad seasons. Like, there have been a lot of bad years in the history of the Mets. I went through this last time. More years than not, the Mets are bad. If I just brought up 2012, like, other than Johan's no-hitter, what would you remember about them sucking that year? Like, you kind of forget. All those bad years just run together. You, you don't remember much. So I remember one of the game, and you want to know what? I was there. It was September. It was late September. It was football season started, and the, no one was there. But R.A. Dickey went for his 20th win of the season. Oh, that's right. That was the R.A. Dickey season. <laughs> that's a good Let's point. Let's go. <laughs> all right, let's get to... What I thought was really, really interesting, because as you know, I think all this talk over the last few weeks about the Met locker room and the clubhouse, I think it's mostly BS. But I'm being clear when I say I think it's BS. I'm not in the locker room. I don't pretend to be a journalist. So I don't know what's actually happening in the Met locker room. But until there's any tangible evidence, until there are stories emerging, specifics, not generalities, then I just don't buy it. I think it's an excuse for why a team sucks because I think that when teams are really, really good, there are guys in the locker room that don't like each other. I think that there are probably a lot of bad stories that we never hear about on teams that win. And I think when teams lose and teams underachieve, it's very convenient, almost lazy to just say, boy, that locker room's got an issue. So I appreciate that Mike Puma did some reporting. I do. because. I'm not definitively telling you there's no issue in the locker room. I'm just saying until we hear evidence of it, until there's like real reporting on it, it just doesn't mean anything to me. And it just seems like convenient kind of excuses for why this team was bad when we could do hours upon hours of Rico Bronia podcast explaining why they were bad. Like going through the pitching that was bad, the lack of clutch hitting that was bad, the defense that was bad, the managerial moves that were bad. Now, why all of that is happening at the same time, <laughs> it's, it's cruel and unusual. So Mike Puma wrote a complete article in which he talked to guys in the Met locker room and sources. So it was a good mix of guys on the record and then guys off the record. The source is saying this, source is saying that to talk about the autopsy on why this season went bad. And I'll tell you what I got out of it. And I advise every Met fan to read it. Number one, there is an unnamed Met, and I love it because this is exactly what I would say, (laughs) that the whole idea of an issue in the locker room 
is the chicken and egg theory. That when things are going well, the locker room's great. There's no issues. When things are going bad, oh yeah, there's problems in the locker room. Quote, one Met called the whole idea of clubhouse chemistry a chicken or the egg proposition. Simply put, does good chemistry create winning or does winning create good chemistry? By all accounts, this group's chemistry wasn't necessarily flawed, but it failed to match the cohesion that developed last season. And then Puma brings up what Steve Gelbs alluded to about a week and a half ago, and that was the connection between Max Scherzer and Chris Bassett and how they shared a lot of information, and you always would see the pitchers talking with each other, and that that hasn't been the case this year, which we haven't seen. And maybe a lot of that has to do with the fact that you've got one pitcher in Kodai Senga that has come over from Japan who doesn't know the language particularly well yet. He's learning it. So to have him engrossed in big pitching conversations is unlikely. The other possibility is Verlander and Scherzer hate each other's guts, which we did hear about before that signing, that they weren't best of best of friends. That Max Scherzer, according to an unnamed Met, thinks Verlander's a diva, that Verlander is very to himself. That all may be true. And sure, it it would be ideal to have every single pitcher concocting plans with each other, giving each other advice, and making each guy better. I think what we saw last year, though, is probably the exception more than it is the rule. Like, just because you've got five guys that have the same job doesn't mean they're all going to be close with each other. So the lack of cohesion amongst Met pitchers being an issue this year as compared to last year, I, I don't think that leads to Max Scherzer blowing every big lead he's handed. Do we think that? Do we think that Chris Bassett was so valuable that Max Scherzer had more balls last year instead of blowing every big lead he's handed? Do we think that? And I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, is that rhetorical? I mean, I, I don't know because I, I hear these things and they're interesting to a degree. But what does it actually mean? Is my well, point. Like, what well, is that? Here, okay, so the pitchers aren't cohesive. What the hell does that mean? That's well, the excuse for why Max Scherzer, every time he was handed a lead, gave it right back. That's the reason why David Peterson went backwards, why Tyler McGill went backward. That's the reason? Uh, let, let, let's break that down for one second here and buy into my theory. Listen, Francisco Alvarez is a new catcher. He's trying to handle things as best as possible. You could see that Scherzer had his moments. Whatever. But if you're telling me last year that those guys were talking every single outing and kind of motivating each other, seeing what they saw, and you're telling me that it didn't happen where Verlander and Scherzer weren't talking, and they listen, let's be serious here. No offense to Jeremy Hefner, he's not going to be able to tell Max Scherzer what to do. He's just not. He can't fix Max Scherzer. But if Justin Verlander, who is a professional, one of the best pitchers of all time, has a conversation with Scherzer, they could be on the same page throughout a game. That's more beneficial. If they're not, it's going to hurt. And 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 that maybe that is a difference. I think that it's ideal in a perfect world to have starting pitchers talking to each other all the time and having a great relationship. I don't think that defines why the starting pitching was so much worse this year than it was last year. It doesn't. Jose Quintana didn't pitch. And once he started pitching, it was too late. 
You know what I mean? Justin Verlander missed the first month of the season. Max Scherzer was not nearly as good this year as he was last year. Like there are tangible reasons why the pitching went backwards. I'm not trying to dismiss this and say it didn't happen. Yeah, ideally, the pitching would have that same cohesion as it had a year ago. I don't think that necessarily explains why the pitching went backwards. I thought what Lindor said was actually very interesting. Now, one quick thing actually about Verlander. Verlander often complained about the Mets analytics department, which he deemed inferior to the one that served him in Houston. He's probably right. When I saw that, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, the Houston Astros are a borderline dynasty. They are. They took Justin Verlander when it appeared as if he was cooked six years ago and resurrected his career. Long before I said anything about the Tampa Bay Rays, I used to say that about the Astros. And I'm not talking about stealing sides. I used to talk about their pitching. And I would say, hey, Joe, isn't it peculiar what's going on in Houston? What do you mean, bro? Look at all these pitchers. Justin Verlander looked cooked. Ryan Presley was this. This guy was that. And all of a sudden, everything's working. That doesn't mean I ever thought the Astros were necessarily cheating with their pitchers, but they're doing something right. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And if Justin Verlander is saying, hey, I think the Astros analytics and the way they were used was far superior to what I'm seeing with the Mets, I trust him. I do. Why, why wouldn't I? The Astros, it's not as if Verlander said, boy, I'll tell you. The, the Oakland A's analytics are kicking the Mets' asses. No, he's talking about the Astros. That's who we want to be. You know, we always hear about the Dodgers. I want to be the Astros. That's who I want to be when you look at their success. But let me get to Lindor, because Lindor was one of the guys on the record here. Lindor's theory on why the Mets' clubhouse chemistry might have seemed better last year. Ah, oh, this is my favorite. He cited the benches clearing tension in games against the Nationals and Cardinals in April of 2022 as team-bonding exercises. In the latter case, the Mets were incensed after the Cardinals' first base coach, Stubby Clapp, tackled Pete Alonso from behind. Quote, it made us closer, but we really haven't had anything like that this season, Lindor said. I'm not saying we should have some, but that is part of it. Okay. This one freaking annoys me to no end. And I appreciate Francisco for giving his opinion on this. How many times, Pete, have we said, hey, the Mets have to do something. The Mets have been drilled a million times. They have to do something. Whether it's charging the mound when a guy gets hit, whether it's drilling Ronald Acuna, do something. And this manager, who deserves a lot of the blame for everything written in this Puma article, by the way, he's the freaking manager. You want to talk about issues in the locker room? Go to the manager. Maybe he is out of touch. Maybe he doesn't know how to handle the room anymore. If if you believe there are issues in the room, which I I told you, I don't think it's just completely overrated, but point towards the manager then. But this point Lindor made, wait a second. 
this manager had many opportunities to very quietly say to a pitcher, go drill this mf go drill this guy. And he would say publicly, well, two wrongs don't make a right. Your best player, and in my opinion, the leader of the team in all likelihood, on the record, has said, hey, maybe if we had an incident like last year, it would have made us closer. You had a million opportunities to do that this season. And they never did. And you know what? Of all the things that Puma cited in this article, that's the one that sticks with me the most. That's the one. Because you had a player on record say, hey, not that he used these terms. I'm obviously paraphrasing. Hey, maybe a brawl would have been good for us. Maybe it would have bonded us. And every time the Mets were drilled yet again this season, including one of their best players getting drilled and being out for a couple of weeks against your bitter rivals, you did nothing. So who do I blame for that? Obviously, you point towards the manager. You could point at any of the aces, supposed aces, who could have done something about it. You could look at any of the Met players that have been drilled a hundred times that could have gone out there and danced, could have gone out there and charged them out. I brought that up a lot last year, that maybe the retaliation is the next time you get drilled, go out and fight somebody. We know about how the 86 Mets love to do that. So that one I buy. I got to tell you, I buy that one. Now, maybe I'm being biased because we have talked about how that's frustrated us. So sometimes I'll always be perfectly honest about this. The way we feel is going to lead us towards having opinions after it's sort of confirmed by a player. So you and I, Pete, screaming, hey, the Mets should retaliate, and then hearing Lindor say, hey, maybe our chemistry would have been better if we had team bonding exercises, such as kicking another team's ass, only furthers that belief that we have. No, and it's true. It's This team felt weird all season long, and it's because they're all individuals. There, there is no gelling. There's no nothing. The fundamentals are so have been thrown out all season long, and it's because no one's gelling. No one, no one's connecting. No one's. It just feels like every individual player has their moment, and that's about it. It's like okay, I'm gonna walk, get a base hit, strike out, get hit by a pitch, whatever happens. Next guy up, and there's 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 nothing that gels. There's nothing that connects them, and that sucks. And not for nothing. I, I'm not done to push back to it, but like Lindor has really grown on me as far as a leader in the clubhouse, as far as somebody who two years ago with the Rat Raccoon stuff, with the Javi Baez thumbs down nonsense, he has been vocal and he's been open and he hasn't shied away from anything. So i not saying that that's a good thing in a season where they've been so bad that, hey, at least some bright spot popped up but i'm at least happy that lindor's been a little bit more vocal in that stuff and lindor also speaking on the record in this article took responsibility for why this team has struggled he cited himself as one of the reasons why they're struggled how the number three hitter hasn't been productive enough so i appreciate that the other thing brought up was starling Marte training in the dominican republic and not rehabbing closer to met doctors I don't think that's a chemistry thing. I think that's more you want your team to know more about the recovery from an injury thing, which I buy because clearly Marte has been greatly affected by the double groin surgery from the offseason. Now, you could look at this as a positive and say, hey, that's a good sign that there's a reason why he's struggling this year. Maybe if he's healthy in 2024, he'll be productive. 
I can't count on that. I don't think any of us are confident about that. But it is better to know, hey, the reason why that guy is struggling is because he's hurt. Because it leads you to believe, well, then if he's healthy, he will be productive. He'll also be a year older. And that's certainly a major concern. I also think when you look at why a team has underachieved in such a major way, it is fair to look at every aspect of a team, every aspect. And if you want to include team chemistry and are there enough leaders as one of the things you're looking at, that's fine. That's fine. I just think that it's kind of easy to diagnose what went wrong. It's easy. We could sit here all day talking about individual players that have not performed. And I think with each guy, there would be different reasons on why. I don't think every answer is the same. We just talked about Starling Marte. I think a big part of why he hasn't been productive this year is he's been hurt. Now we get to Jeff McNeil who's had an awful season. Why has Jeff McNeil gone from batting title to 250 hitter? Why? Why has Brandon Nimmo gone backwards? I think there are reasons to dive in on Brandon Nimmo. Have they changed his swing too much? Have they tried him to try to get him to be more aggressive to hit the ball in the air way too much? Where yeah, the power's up, but the batting average is not only down, but his on base is down. I think there are reasons to explore why Nimmo has gone backwards, why Marte has gone backwards. The McNeil one, I'm not sure about. There are reasons why the pitching has been far worse than it was a year ago. And we haven't even brought up the Edwin Diaz injury, which we know has played a big role in things. I I don't think it's a waste to talk about chemistry. Like it should be brought up when you're trying to analyze why things went wrong, but it's way down the list. I'm sorry, it is. And I've always felt this way, that I think it can be greatly, greatly overrated. When things are great, We talk about how wonderful the chemistry is. Look at last year with this exact same team. Not exact same team. I know the pitchers are a little bit different. But look what we used to say a year ago or what was said about the chemistry a year ago. Oh, what a great room. Everyone pulls for each other. McNeil and Lindor after choking each other out a year ago with the rat raccoon thing. Now that BFFs is a double play combination. Everyone's talking to each other. What a great room. Now you have a dreadful season for many, many reasons, and it's up. That room's flawed. The chemistry's a big problem. You know, last year, I remember after a Lindor at-bat or an Alonzo at-bat, you would see one of them, even after a strikeout, go immediately to the guy on deck or the guy in the hole and talk about what they saw. We saw that a lot last year. Hey, guess what? I've seen that a lot this year, too. I have. What the hell does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's great. Oh, great. They're communicating. Last year, the communicating was great because the Mets were the fifth best offense in the National League, whatever it was, or Major League Baseball. So it worked. Oh, it's great. Look look how they're communicating with each other. This is amazing. They've done the same thing this year. Except they're not producing. So I think we make too much of it. Sometimes things are simple. The team wasn't as good as we thought. The team was old, right? I think the age thing is a big deal. And we knew that coming into this season, but a lot of us, myself included, I'll raise my hand on it, kind of downplayed it. It's okay that they have a really, really old rotation. It's okay. It's all right that they're not that athletic and they're old. They're an old team. This is a young man's game. 
And a part of why I've come around to what they decided to do a few weeks ago is because while the short-term return on it is atrocious, and this is really bad baseball, and even next year, I don't know what they're going to do with their rotation. I don't know how they replace the innings of potential Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander innings. But what I do know is they are trying to do what other teams around baseball are doing, which is getting younger and more athletic. Doesn't mean it's going to work. Doesn't mean all of the guys they got back are going to be stars. None of us have any idea. But I understand why they changed their approach. I get it. Now, I got a lot of emails at therecob at gmail.com that are very pissed off at our man Salakot. So I'm on, what the hell did Sal do? Why do I got people yelling at Lakata? He's this, he's that. He hates Pete Alonzo. What, what, what did I miss, Pete? Well, unfortunately, I was in Detroit traveling with the Giants, so I happened to not be there that day. So he went AWOL, or he went rogue and decided to go crazy. Uh, but no, I don't, I, I talked to Sal a little bit, and from what I understand, he just was making the point that the, the locker room has toxicity in it, and he was making the case that someone's got to go um, to ch- maybe change it up. And I think he pointed out that Pete Alonso would be maybe the guy to do it. And it's not putting all the blame on Pete Alonso. It's more about like, hey, what value can you get? What value can you get for can – you, can you really trade a Francisco Lindor? Can you, are you going to get anything for Jeff McNeil or Brandon Pete Alonso is the one guy that might actually bring you a ton of pieces back. 